100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Jake Bush of Ohio and the In Session Podcast. Jake is known for his success on big early season mountain bucks. We discuss the struggles of hunting the big woods and when things change, you know, logging, hunting pressure, EHD, etc. How we adapt to these situations, different ways bucks use hub systems, how we learn from an area over the years, and much more. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, we have a story coming from Brad Linger out of West Virginia. And Brad wrote in, I have always had hopes of getting my hands on a nice West Virginia public land buck. On the afternoon of October 4th, 2022, it all came together. My buddy and I had some time off together during a weekday and decided to head out to a public land. Finally, we started the hike in for about a mile or so, and I finally found a decent enough tree in the pitch black morning to get my climber around 15 feet. The morning hunt was fairly slow, which is a couple of those feeding and not much until around 1030. And my buddy, who's in the tree about 250 yards away, laid eyes on a nice 10 point, he said. So we had lunch and decided to make our way back early, getting to our trees about noon. I switched my spot a little and found a nice finger ridge that ran all the way down to a brush thicket towards the bottom. I finally got up and settled in around 1245 and shortly after I looked up to see half a rack around a tree about 60 yards out. As he steadily closed the distance, my heart started racing as I thought about a plan in my head. The buck then felt something off, it seemed, so he stood in his tracks for about 20 minutes. I was offered a couple of shots, but none I felt comfortable with, so I continued to wait. He then turned and left my sight. I thought I blew it and missed my chance. Within 20 minutes, a few does and a spike came feeding right in. When the spike got to around 25 yards of me, I hit the grunt call softly. It took no time, and here came the big boy. Strolling in, looking for trouble, he walked right along the finger ridge just as I had planned. I drew back and slowly turned to stop him at 17 yards broadside. I arrowed him, and he took off down the steep holler. I made some phone calls and climbed down the tree, gathering my things to take to the truck before moving in on the deer. We came back, and I was worried sick to not find any blood at the impact point. Finally, as we started down the hill, the blood started getting heavier and heavier, and as we got to the creek, there he was, my first public land buck. I picked his head up, admiring such a beautiful animal, and then realized he was missing two tines. After some thorough searching, my friend thankfully found his two tines busted off, one in a small tree and one lying on the ground, an experience I will never forget. My biggest buck to date and one of my greatest memories with a good friend. Well, congratulations, Brad. Uh, you earned it there. That's an, a beautiful 10 point. And what a chance, what are the chances of being able to find those two tines that had broken off? Uh, and you'll see the pictures of them there on, on Instagram, East Meets West Hunt, and Facebook, East Meets West Outdoors. But man, th- yeah, thank you for sending this story in, Brad. Really appreciate it. If anybody else has a Mountain Buck Monday story that they want to submit, send it in to bowateastmeetswesthunt.com. So that's my email address. Send it in. Title the thing Mountain Buck Monday. Have a brief story, a little paragraph or two about the what happened and some photos. I'd love to be able to share it with uh, all, of, all of you. 
So uh, in other news, uh, we're going to be rolling out uh, the weekly Q&A podcast, the second episode dropping this Friday. So be sure to tune into that short 10 to 20 minute episodes based on your questions. So if you have questions that you want answered uh, about hunting whitetails and big woods or mountains or whatever, uh, feel free to send them in. And uh, if I feel like that that I've had experience or something that where I feel confident in answering that, then I'll, I'll give my opinion on it and, and answer it in one of the shows. So hopefully uh, you enjoy that series. Love to hear feedback on it. So feel free to, to leave comments on uh, the YouTube video or through email or whatever else uh, that helps, helps me kind of figure out what, what you guys want and make sure that, that I'm delivering the information that, that you're looking for. And lastly, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your friends and uh, give a rating and review wherever you listen to it. That stuff helps out so much. And uh, I really appreciate everyone that's done it up until this point. With that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode with Jake Bush and hope everyone's having a good season so far. All right, we're live, and we have a guest on that uh, it's been a couple of years, Jake Bush. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Bo, thanks for having me on, man. Last uh, show we did together, I ended up killing the buck I was after a couple weeks later, and so hopefully you're a good luck charm for me, and we can do that again <laughs> this year. <laughs> I, I hope so. That was... Yeah, actually, yeah, actually, uh, that was the year that uh, I killed one early too. So opening that was day, right? Opening day, yeah. So that was uh, that was a good year, and then you know, since then, I, I can't say that 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 luck has completely rolled over for me. And and I know you had a, a tough year last year too. So I I can hopefully this is what we needed to reset us going into this year. Yeah, we'll just make it happen every couple of years. We'll just have a revolving door. It's perfect. Yeah, we don't want to use up too much of that that luck, you know, every year, but <laughs> it would start but, looking bad eventually. Yeah, we got to do every two. Yeah, exactly. But anyways, man, how you been? I've been really good, man. Uh family's doing great. Job's going great. I've been out scouting as much as I can trying to figure these deer out. How about yourself? <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty good. It's been uh similar at the time of recording this. It'll it'll come out a couple weeks after we record this, but I uh I haven't been in the whitetail woods since late August because I was gone in in uh, Alaska and then just trying to catch up on work getting back here and it's 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 kind of killing me to get out and and check some cameras and kind of get moving because this year is kind of a a weird year for me where the last few years I was really targeting uh, one buck and he ended up getting killed and I have other deer but just none of the none of them that I just feel like this real personal connection with. So I'm really just kind of been bouncing around, uh, trying to see if it's like, if one of these ones for some reason gives me the trigger to like go all in on them, but I haven't, I haven't necessarily found that yet. Yeah. That was me last year. I just, I couldn't find a deer that just, I was going crazy over and it was honestly, it was kind of a cool way to hunt. I bounced around a lot more than normal. You know, when you get hyper-focused on a specific deer, you go down that rabbit hole, like everything is for that deer. You might do some scouting on bad condition days, but in the back of your mind, you're like, when can I get in there again? And, but without that, I mean, I covered a ton of ground last year, honestly had a lot of fun doing it. I think the next time that happens to me, I'm going to pick up the longbow. I've been telling myself that for a while. So 
maybe next year, the year after that, if I just don't have a big target to go after, I'll just pick up the longbow and I'm like, I'm going to go kill a good deer, figure it out. Have you been, have you been practicing with the longbow and everything? I, you could call it practicing. I shoot a lot, but I don't feel like <laughs> okay. I'm getting any better. So, um, I can, I actually was out shooting before this. I'm at 10 yards. I can do about a six inch group consistently, but that's about the most I can dial it in right now. So I've been taking some feedback from some guys and hopefully I can get past that. I saw you shooting one as well with, uh, Nathan Killen on a video. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And I, I, man, that's one of those things where I'd love to really love to do it. My dad had bought one has been messing around with it and, and I really want to, but I struggle enough. Yeah, <laughs> It's hard enough that I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready to throw that extra level of stuff on it. But now where, where I do think, I don't want to say it's necessarily easier, but where I feel like it makes it simpler is that you're not worrying about a whole lot of you know, you're not worrying about your sight and your string stretching and all these different things that you come into and your bow being in tune and all these different things. It's just a simpler way to be able to hunt. And I, I can admire that as well as from, you know, the people that, that do it. And Nathan's one of those guys that just like does it every year and is super effective with, with that bow. I don't want him to use a compound cause it would be, uh, wouldn't be fair. <laughs> yeah and i mean to it just to speak on that the level that he's on to be able to consistently kill good deer using that is just it's so unbelievable to me it's it's so far above and beyond what i find myself capable of and eventually like that's what i want to reach for is i want to be able to take that longbow and go actually be effective with it but there's so many things that are involved in that um but i do enjoy the simplicity side of it and i think that that's what i'm that's why I want to get into it more is the fact that, like you said, it's a very simple process to take into the woods. It's lightweight. Mine's a takedown. I can put it in my backpack if I want and then just go like adventure hunt and pull it out when I need to. So it's just, it's different, man. It would be cool. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. And, you know, we talk about simplifying things and it really goes the same way with chasing a specific deer for me. Like you go in these stages and I feel like people do this all the time and I can't remember the term for it, but it's where you basically, you start at like a certain level and you're pretty minimalist and you, you know, say you're getting, getting, uh, you're, you're just trying to find a deer to hunt, you know, and you're just going after it. And all of a sudden you get into hunting specific deer and you're super focused and you're, you're going in on it. And then with gear, it's like, you start adding all this gear and you start adding, adding, adding till you get to a point where you feel like, holy cow, how did I end up carrying all this stuff in and all these gadgets and these things and the electronics. And then all of a sudden you get to a point where you're like, hold on a second, let me go back. You know, people do it with trail cameras all the time. That's me. It seems right like, is, is that you right now? Okay. Right now. And, uh, so like, honestly, I'm getting close to that point with trail cameras myself. Cause I've got so many of them now it's a full-time job just trying to check them. And, uh, it's like, okay, you get to this point where you just, you go so in on something and then you back off it. And I always get like that with hunting a specific deer. It's like every few years I find this deer that I'm hunting and I'll put, you know, usually it takes years into it and whether I kill that deer, or I don't. Then afterwards, I'm burned out from doing that. And I just want to just hunt and just be like, okay, where's the first, you know, four year old 120 inch eight point that's going to come by and I'm going to, I'm going to shoot it. And then all of a sudden I, you know, I do that. And then it's all of a sudden another deer shows up and I go down that same rabbit hole again. And it's, it's, it's a weird thing to think about, but you're, you're getting that way with trail cameras. I am. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing there is just keeping it fresh because we're always, we're constantly trying to evolve and find a way to make it exciting. 
And when you go down that hole of like chasing the, the specific deer, it's really exciting for a while, but then you do burn out a little bit. I felt that burnout before, but the same way, if you don't have one to chase and you're just scouting all year, it's like, okay, I'm kind of burned out. I'd like to chase a deer now. Like I want to get after it. But, but yeah, with the camera thing, I mean, I came to Ohio five years ago and I had four or five cameras to my name. That's all I ever ran. And ever since then, I've been building up just this inventory of cameras. And I'm at the point this year where between Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Kentucky, I'm running over 90 cameras. And it's just, my my brain is just like going crazy with all this data I have. And it's just a lot to manage, to be honest with you. And it's really expensive. I run lithiums and all those. So they'll last the whole year. And then so, you know, there's 1500, 1800 bucks in batteries right off the top before you buy a camera and you have all those SD cards, you get all that data back and it's like, okay, I have to take this data and I have to make something out of it. Otherwise it was just a waste. And so it is, it's just, it's a lot going on that isn't actually hunting. You know, we're like, that data is very important to the hunt, but you could probably hunt without that data and apply the same amount of effort and still have quite a bit of success doing that. And it would probably be more enjoyable to be honest with you. It's yeah, it's fun. It's funny you say that because, like, I, I take all of my trail cameras, and then you gotta you gotta put it on the computer. So you gotta go through, and you're watching it. Especially now that I use video on most yeah. of them. So now you got 15 to 20 seconds. You gotta watch through of each video clip versus just clicking through the photos, and then go through, delete the ones you don't want, see which ones you want to keep, categorize them. Then I go and I have an Excel spreadsheet where there's certain bucks I log all the data from when they were there, what times, all this stuff, and it's like. And it was manageable up to when I had about 30 cameras. Now I'm about 50 or so. And it's, I don't, I can't keep up with it to the level that I did, you know, before. And now it's like, okay, I only do it for certain areas or certain deer that, that I've, you know, going after. And, and it's, it's a lot, it's super helpful. I do think it's a very, a very good way of learning an area or learning a deer, but it, at the same time, I agree with like the amount of time that you put into doing some of that stuff. You might be able to just hunt during some of that time and, and, and be able to be just as effective. And, and it's just, you know, hunting, there's a million ways to skin a cat essentially. And there's not any wrong or right way. It's just kind of finding what fits your style and personality. I completely agree. And I almost wonder if there's not a certain point where that data becomes detrimental. Like, you mentioned 30 cameras. When I was running 30 cameras, it was it was extremely valuable for me. Like I could, you know, cast a wide net, but I was still fine-tuning on specific deer and I could still manage that the right way and put the right amount of effort into all that data. Where you get to a certain point where you have so much data, like you said, you just quit putting that effort into it and you might overlook little things. So it's like too much data almost overstimulates your mind and then you start getting lackadaisical with it and it's not as valuable anymore. So I just wonder if there's there's like a point of no return or like a, an ROI almost. Like what's the ROI on 30 cameras versus 70? Maybe 30 is actually more beneficial than having too many and not being able to use that data the correct way. Yeah, no, I, I, I would I would 100% agree. And I, I would say an example of that was last year when I was hunting this, this buck, I had so much data on the area and this deer that it was like, I wasn't, I wasn't just reading what was in front of me. I was so, and I believe historical data can be so important, but there's times when you got to kind of put that aside and it's like, okay, I'm not seeing 
the things that I usually saw. It's like something's changed and it took me too long last year to make that decision and realize it where I was hunting an area for, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon for me to hunt for three days and not see a deer. But the fact that when I checked my cameras, I didn't even have a doe on there. Like there's something going on here and there was no, no sign. It was like, but I was like, last three years, you know, he's come through here at this time. Like it's going to happen. Well, it just, the, the, the facts were right there in front of me, but I was blinded to it because I was so just in tuned on this, this data that I had. And, and I felt like it kind of screwed me. And then finally it was like two o'clock and or no, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon. I remember sitting in the tree, like, what am I doing? And I remember Johnny Stewart telling me about, he's like, just look at, you know, take emotion out of it and just kind of look at what are the pros and cons. And I was like, I'm not coming up with a whole lot of pros here. And I just got down and, and moved and I ended up killing a buck that evening and 15 miles away in a spot I hadn't even walked into that year. So it was just like that, <laughs> that to me was like, okay, the, the data is super important and I think it can be really useful, but you got somehow got to get through your own mind and of, of being able to figure out like when to rely on it heavily and when not to. And that's, there's not, there's not an easy black and white answer to that. Yeah. I don't think there is a correct answer. I do have a selfish question though. Was there a variable there with that historical data that you ended up figuring out as to why those deer weren't in that area? Yeah, there was. So one of them was hunting pressure. Uh, that specific area had more hunting pressure that had moved in. Um, there was also, uh, well, the year before there wasn't any acorns in there either. Um, but the year prior when most of it was there, there was acorns in there. And, but I was like, there was a fresh logging cut and they were, they were on, they were feeding on the tops and stuff there a little bit, but that was even getting to the point too, where the year prior that was perfectly fresh and there was, you know, they were getting those tops and they were still in there kind of logging. So it was still a good food source, but that, you know, year after they log, it's kind of a dead time from them using it for, for feeding purposes. And then again, like I said, there was more hunting pressure that had moved in and not the exact area I hunted, but the surrounding portions of it. And I think it just changed up that movement. Now, what I did find was two weeks later, really at the last couple days of our season into gun season, that buck came back in there and was, and so were the other deer and they were running like crazy, but that's probably because hunting pressure also slowed down and I'm sure some other variables I'm not completely aware of. And then he was running, I had video of him grunting and chasing a doe the day before gun season, he got killed that opening weekend. So his, uh, that, that, that hurt. And, and someone had, um, I haven't, I didn't talk to the guy myself, but someone I know did. And he's like, yeah, I just, climbed up and he just came right out in the open chasing a doe and I shot him and it was like first time ever hunting the spot. And, uh, it was one of those situations. I'm like, that deer has never showed himself like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just crazy, man. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the nature of it. And I know last year you dealt with quite a bit of changes. Um, that was EHD related mostly, wasn't it? Yeah, so we got decimated with EHD down here pretty heavily. Uh started picking up on the fact that it was widespread in like middle of August when I was pulling my cameras into September and I went into scramble mode immediately. I knew I had a problem. I had a bunch of big deer on camera that disappeared on me. Um and I started getting a hold of some of the locals in the areas and they're like, Yeah, this deer that you sent me a picture of, he was dead in the creek. And like they had just tons of deer that were dead. So 
it was basically, I was very historical data focused up until that point. Like it was something that was important to me. And after that, I took a big step back and I was like, okay, I was, I like cameras were a crutch for me for a long time, whether it was a summertime photo of a deer or gaining some data on like a specific pattern or that historical data. I think it's all very useful, but I think as soon as it goes away and you don't have it for that year, like it left me, I had no idea what to do. And so I just started going into scramble mode. I was casting a wide net in season. I mean, walking around without my bow some days, just, just trying to find deer sign. And honestly, the whole year made me a much better hunter, but I've, I've entered this year and I think I'll enter the, the future seasons with a new mindset because of that, of like, don't, don't let the cameras become a crutch because there's going to be another time, whether it's pressure being induced, uh, food sources shifting, new logging operations, whatever it may be, that you're just going to have to get to your roots and try to figure out how to kill a deer the right way again. And if you know you utilize that camera data all the time, while it's really good 90% of the time, if you, if you, do, if you don't have it, you're going to be struggling. So that was pretty much my mindset coming into this year was just run the camera still, but try to keep that open mind. That's why I always ask those questions to everybody. I'm trying to like pull that data out of other people. Like, Hey, yeah. you know, what, what variables did you see or what did you do in this situation? And did you, did you find last year when were like almost all the areas that you were able to go to, or you scouted or tried to hunt, were they all affected by EHD for the most part? Every single one of them had EHD in some way, (laughs) shape or form. And it was crazy, man. I mean, I saw, we don't have necessarily official numbers, but I saw I'm positive up to 75, 80% of the deer died in some areas. And the population of mature bucks was even higher than that because they're the ones that are most affected. So, I mean, I got to the point where I have one area where it's roughly a thousand acres and I found 30 dead bucks in there. And talk to local farmers. I I know a local farmer that has a farm right next to the public. He found 600 dead deer on his farm alone. And it was just the amount of deer that were dying was crazy. So, yeah, it was was very widespread. Um, The silver lining of that is this year it seems like the deer moved back into those areas. And then I've heard from a lot of people that have EHD outbreaks that three to five years down the road because there's less competition for food that you actually have bigger deer. And I don't know if there's any actual factual data behind that besides people saying it, it gets better. But but so I'm kind of looking forward to that too, where maybe I'll see an increase in in body and antler size over a couple years just because of the lack of competition in those areas. Well, I mean, I, I would, I don't know if I have the data to support that either, but I would agree with it just from growing up in Pennsylvania and seeing where I never saw the time the time frame where there was a ton of deer, but you know, I hear the stories of my grandpa and even my dad when he was younger talking about herds of 70, 80 deer come by the first day of gun season. You sit on a rock with a fire going and just shoot, but there was never anything bigger than a four point, you know, that was, no, this is an extreme example, but you know, now where deer densities are, are really low, they're coming back. I will say there's more deer now than there was 10 years ago, but now they have all the food that they could want, you know, and then you throw in logging, you throw in other things that help the habitat out. They've got a lot of food and browse and, and mass crop and everything available, but the bodies are bigger than I've ever seen. The same with the antlers. And I, I think that I, I believe that that a lot of times comes down to the, the deer numbers and not competing for the food. So I would, I would think that makes, makes a whole lot of sense. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And I find myself targeting the areas that are lower densities because they typically have bigger deer anyways. And I've always tried to correlate that back to other things like soil maps or whatever it may be, but it might truly just come back to the fact that they don't, they have less competition. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's like, there's a variety of things that can, can, you know, go into effect on that. Like I also think in PA, the antler restrictions were a big thing that, that helped us out and, you know, everything along those lines. But yeah, I, low deer density areas are tough because they, it takes a while to gain, if you're not used to it, to gain confidence in knowing what you're doing is right versus an area where you're getting that positive reinforcement of seeing a deer, you know, on every sit or you see a buck, maybe it's a small buck, but it's like, you know, in areas like the you hunt and I hunt, and I know a lot of the listeners hunt. It's like some, sometimes you go days without seeing deer and it's like, am I doing the right thing? You know, and, and unless you have that, that past experience of like, okay, recognizing certain sign or, or certain terrain features or whatever, it, it can be tough. And even now, like, is I've been hunting th- these types of areas my whole life. And I still, every single year, it seems like go through a point where I'm like, do I know anything? Like, I, I don't know if I do. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. And I mean, it, it is, it's, it's like, I have people that come to Ohio to hunt with me and, or they'll like want to hunt around the area and they just stay at my house. And they always ask like, Hey, what's a good starting spot? I'm like, well, do you want to see deer or do you not want to see deer and maybe shoot a 150? Because those are two totally different things in the majority of the cases. And in my case, it's, I want to see the bigger deer. So like, have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart and others available at all times? Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery, mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. Man, I've had years down here where, aside last year, for example, I saw in 72 days in the woods, I saw six bucks. Total. And that was okay for me though. Like I was content with that because I just understand what it takes. And I understand that more days than not, you're going to go out and you're just watching squirrels and birds. And, but a 160 could walk off that ridge out of his bed at any moment. And so like, that's always in the back of your head. But yeah, I, I struggle with the same thing a lot where 
you know, when you're when you're high on the horse because you've killed a couple early season bucks, it's a little different. But when you start getting in that grind mode, it's like, do I really know what's going on out here? Because I'm not seeing any life at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, I could totally totally relate to to that. And it's like like with with uh, you know not seeing too many deer, it's it's those in the areas that it seems like the big deer live or they want to travel in daylight, it's like sometimes it's thicker, sometimes whatever. And they don't like to be around a lot of other deer, especially, you know, outside of the rut. It's like, that's a really difficult time to be able to do it. And I've always appreciated seeing, you know, someone like yourself that's had a lot of success early season where, you know, someone like me, I've, I've killed three deer in the last 10 years in early October. Other than that, it's, it, a lot of years I'm like, I, I'm not on deer and that's just the way that it, the way that it is sometimes, but it's, it's super difficult to be able to do that. And it takes a different mindset to be able to go into it. I was just editing last night. I was editing my uh, 2022 Pennsylvania hunt for YouTube video. I'm like going through the footage. I'm like, I don't really have any bucks on camera on my video camera until the one I shoot. And that's yeah. a terrible, that's terrible footage too. I'm like, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, this is, uh, just, but that's the, the nature of it. Like, honestly, I, yeah, I may have seen a couple other deer that I didn't get on film, but I don't, I don't see a whole lot of deer in a season. Oh, I completely agree. And honestly, man, like from the filming aspect for me, it's when I have a deer come down, that's not the right deer. The last thing going through my head is I need to film that deer. I'm focused. I'm like, okay, the other one's probably up there. And I just know, like, if I have my bow on my side and I'm on my camera, like, adjusting the focus and stuff, I'm going to look over and see that big buck coming at me, and I'm going to go in scramble mode. So I, it probably hurts the videos, but I do the same thing. I'm just like, all right, camera's here. It's kind of waiting on the big one. I'll watch it. I'll, like, film them with my cell phone or something. You know, just something different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had um, – that there was, there was one situation. I was watching it, and I was like, I remember this hunt, and it was like, there was rut activity going on all around me. I didn't film any of it because yeah. like, I was like, something can happen at any moment and I need to be ready for it. And then I'll worry about if I have time for the camera afterwards. Well, I just was so focused on that. I never even turned the camera on. So it was like, <laughs> you just, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm not one of those, those people that 100% puts the, the camera first. And I respect people that can do that because that is, that is, that's tough. It is tough. And I'm, I'm not either, man. I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of point and shoot and I get lucky every couple of years. Like, yeah, I'll say, Hey, the buck's going to walk through here. And then I have the encounter and I look back at the footage and I'm like, wow, he was actually in frame. I can't believe he was in frame. <laughs> and then I, you know, the good thing about the new cameras is you can leave it like zoomed way out and then you just zoom in and pan in, uh, in uh premiere or whatever you use to edit your film. So it kind of gives the panning effect without actually panning. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And, and, uh, I'm learning, I'm learning that like my one last year was, and I've told this on here before, but I had the camera set up next to me and I had it where I thought it was angled down right. And I didn't have that, the head tightened down enough and it kind of floated and yep. it came up and, uh, all you get, you, all you get to see is the antlers come in me draw back and release the arrow, but you don't get the, the actual deer or the shot. And it was like perfect, you know, 14 yards right in the open, right where I would expect deer to come from. And it's like, or 12 yards. And it's like, that's just kind of the nature of trying to film that stuff. It definitely is. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that you, uh, you know, your style of like kind of putting in that area and letting it go because 
your videos have it pretty good. Like I was like, man, that's some good filming for, you know, having a deer, like the, the size, the size of the, some of the ones that you've shot in frame. And I'm like, man, that takes some, some patience and to be able to do that. But so it, it, it's, it does sound like it is, but to be honest with you, man, normally it's, it's kind of my hunting style just lends to producing that with, I pick one trail pretty much and I just go all in on that one trail. And then I have basically they're walking through the cover and then they have a spot that I want to shoot them. And if he reads the script, well then it just looks good immediately because all I have to do is hit record on the camera and I never even touch the camera. But if anything crazy happens, it's a, I miss the deer, I get it out of focus or anything else. So, you know, just, it goes back to that style of being okay with not seeing deer almost where it's like, okay, he's either going to come down this trail and I'm going to kill him. And if he does anything else, I'm not going to get an opportunity, but I'd rather have that as opposed to like sitting that big, you know, central hub or like an area where I think I'm going to catch a bunch of convergence a lot of times and then just be out of the game or be like too much in the game and they're running all around me. So I just try to like pick the one trail pretty much. I gotcha. So, uh, kind of on the effect of, you know, last year you were bouncing around a little bit. I had saw, uh, an Instagram story that you posted the other day where you were in an area and you had a buck that you wanted to hunt on a scrape. And then all of a sudden you see a skitter, uh, I believe a skitter go through. And immediately I was like, dude, I can relate. And I was like, we, we need to, we need to talk about this on the podcast. I want, want you to kind of explain a little bit. About yeah, that. it's a heartbreak, man, is what it is. Um, so last year, I, it took me until mid-January to find a target. And I ended up going back to an area that I've had success in before. Um, it got hit really hard with EHD, but a bunch of deer shifted back into that area as season went on. So basically, I was driving by one day, and I'm driving down the road, and I look over, and there's like private land that borders the public. And I'm looking at the private and there's like a dump truck corn pile on the private, this huge corn pile. And we didn't have any red oaks last year or chestnut oaks or anything for the deer to feed on in the woods. So I remember thinking to myself, like any deer within a mile is probably coming to this big corn pile. So I circled way around and got up on the public ridges. And sure enough, it was like muddy trails going to that corn pile. And so I already had the bedding scouted in this area and everything. I pretty much had a plan laid out for when they were targeting either ag or when they were targeting some good white oak flats down in the bottoms. So it was kind of the same pattern. Like they were doing the same bed to food pattern. It was just a different food source. So I threw a couple SD cams in there, uh, really poor signal and a lot of the activities down lower. So it's just SD cams. So I threw some cams in there. I threw a random set at it. I didn't see anything. Uh, I went and pulled those cameras and I had the buck that I wanted to chase on there. I was like, oh man, I will definitely shoot this deer. I know this deer. He's old. He was like seven or eight last year because he's been a, he's been a mature deer as long as I've hunted Ohio. So I was really excited. He kind of had a wonky side. Like he got hurt the year before, maybe, maybe got shot or hit by a car. So last year he was a seven point this year he's an eight point. But anyways, um, it kind of comes back to the cameras being a crutch. I was waiting for specific daylight photos of that deer last year to try to make a move or determine where he was. And in reality, I should have went in and just scouted a little bit more on the fly and probably would have got closer to him quicker. I ended up catching up with him last season. The, it was the last day of season and he was shut out at 15 yards, no antlers on his head. So <laughs> I, I found his bed. I got him on an SD cam. Everything played out perfect. I went in, I sat three days, all day sits, the end of season in like 15 degrees. 
I would actually get down midday and sleep in a little sun pocket beside the tree to keep my feet from freezing. And like the last day I woke up and I had rolled out of that sun and I was just frozen solid. But like I would, I would get in the stand at like 2 a.m. I would wait for him to come by. I would get down. I had the perfect off wind, you know, late season, the wind and thermals are doing totally different things. So all day long I could sit there with him in his bed and he would never smell me. So I'd get down, nap, I'd get back up in the tree about, you know, four or five o'clock and then wait for him to come back through to see if I could kill him. And reason being is I couldn't access close enough to that deer because it was so noisy. So, you know, I could hear deer walking on ridges four or 500 yards away. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to get in here a hundred yards from this bedded buck and be able to set up right now. So I'm just going to have to be in here all day. So that storyline played out and I had him at 15 yards the last day of season, all excited. Uh, he pops his head out, no antlers. He works a scrape in front of me at 15 yards. He walks by my SD camera and it was a wild view, just like a cheap Walmart camera. And when it took a picture, it popped really loud. And he ran back to the base of my tree and started feeding on Greenbrier at the base of my tree. And I was just like, just go away. Just, just get out of here, man. But, um, so this year <clears throat> I go into season. I'm like, all right, I got a vengeance against this deer. Like I'm going to figure him out. He's old. He's mature. I thought he was going to go downhill a little bit, but, uh, I, I put cameras in the area this summer and on top of the ridge, this is where being a podcast host is really cool where I get to, you know, g- gather information and data from everybody else. I've been talking to a lot of guys. One of those guys is, uh, Justin Wright and he is, He's a hub hunter like me, but he hunts them differently. He hunts up higher and he also hunts the deer hub hopping from one hub to the other hub. And so I've talked to him a little bit and I've got like a new, like a very, whatever the deer tell me mentality this year, as opposed to trying to already understand what they're doing. So I was walking the spine of a ridge to put a camera up and I'm on that spine of the ridge and I stop and I was like, this scrape's been here forever. Why is this scrape on the spine of the ridge? They never walk the spine of that ridge. I've never been able to figure it out. And from talking to Justin, I'm sitting here thinking about it. And I'm like, I wonder if those deer are coming out of this hub and then crossing the spine of the ridge and then going down into the other hub. Well, sure enough, there was a trail with just browse in the Greenbrier doing exactly that, a very faint trail. And I put a cell cam on it because I had signal on top of the spine of that ridge. And that buck was crossing that 20 yard wide section of that ridge every single day. And he was... He he's big. I'll I'll show you some pictures after the podcast. He is a he's a very substantial animal. We'll say that much. But he's been showing up. I mean, three, four, five days a week in the morning or the afternoon all summer and then into September. And I've been been like, man, I got him pegged. It took me five years, but I got this deer figured out. I've got the perfect access in there for a morning sit, and I can actually hunt that spot. I could hunt that spot every day of the year and he never crosses my access route and he would never smell me because of the way, like the ridge is cliffed out. So he has to come through there. So my thermals and my wind would basically dump off the front and he would just hook around and just miss that every single time. So it's, huh. I mean, it's bulletproof. So I've been all excited. I've been banking on that a lot, but I've also, in the meantime, I kept telling myself like, don't get single minded on this one spot. Make sure you have backup plans. So Every adjacent ridge within two miles, I've got cameras on and I've got scouted pretty good in case this deer shifts around. So last week I get a picture of him again, the first uh, hard horn picture, and it's like 740 in the morning. He's coming back from the field just like he should be. 
He hits that scrape. He works it with another big 10. I mean, this, this 10 points like 160 inches. And I don't even look at this 10 point this year because of this buck. So the 10 works the scrape. He comes in behind the 10 works the scrape. It's the closest picture I've ever got of him. He walks right in front of my camera and I'm just like, Oh man, I'm two weeks out of season. Like, come on, let's go. And the next picture I got was like three hours later of the scrape. It was literally in the bucket of a logging skitter, seven feet off the ground. Like they had it, the, the fact that it had dug up the way it did and they picked it up just and that photo took the perfect shot. It's unbelievable to see, like, I can see my entire tree in the scrape full of buck fever synthetics, like in the bucket of this skitter. And <laughs> Then the next, you know, the next series of photos for the next few days is just like, like this logger sees my camera and he makes a point to have lunch in front of it every day. And so, so I'm getting like, my Tacticam account is all just loggers eating lunch. And like, I mean, just the whole nine yards, man. So, um, they ended up getting a couple of my, I had a bunch of cameras in there. They ended up just running a bunch of them over. It looks like, cause they're gone. The trees are gone, but, uh, so immediately I was down in Kentucky when I got that picture and I was like, well, I have to come up with some sort of backup plan at this point. I've got to figure something out. So, uh, got back from Kentucky and I just, the only thing I knew to do in that situation is just dive right back in there. And so I went in, I got all the cameras out that I could off the ridge that they're actively logging. Um, there were some signs that I should have paid attention to that I will now where like a lot of the red oaks or the chestnut oaks are painted like red or blue with their stripes. Well, now I, if I see that again, I'm like, they're probably going to log in here. (laughs) So I'm going to try to not be in that area. But, um, I ended up turning up some pretty good sign in there. So those deer haven't shifted as far as I thought they were going to. They're kind of just working around the loggers and there's a bunch of tops from those oaks that they cut down that are loaded with thousands of acorns. And I honestly, I think that that's going to be like a major food source over the next few weeks. So shifted my cameras. I mean, some of them I shifted as little as 50 yards just to make sure they don't get hit by a skitter. And some of them I shifted up to a mile, but I, uh, I feel like I gained enough data where I could probably still be in the game. I have no idea if he's been in there or not, like the cell cams I have, haven't caught him yet, but I have a ton of SD cameras in there. So going into season, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what to think. I kind of, I want to kill that deer. So I think I'm just going to start like staging my way in and just see if I can find hot sign on the fly and set up on it and see what it is. To be honest with you, that's pretty much all I know to do at this point. Yeah. Um, for, uh, I have a, few questions off that but first i want to uh just talk about that that logging scenario so i it was funny where was i i don't for i think i was in west i was in north carolina uh i don't know a few weeks back and i just was showing some guys i was like look at i said look at this picture of this buck like this is this is a pretty dang good deer and he yeah this is what he did last year like he was killable if i would have hunted this area i knew the area well I'm like, they had logged in there probably about three or four years ago and the undergrowth was at a good level. They were using it, browsing, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, all of a sudden I only had one cell cam in there and I just got one of the, uh, AT&T, uh, cell cams from Exodus, which has an actual, that has good service there, which my regular phone doesn't even get service, but that camera does. And I get a picture of this big machine going, same thing right through my licking branch. Like it's like 
up in the air yeah. coming through and i'm like i was like what the heck and but it didn't look like a normal skitter so i texted my buddy kenny who's a forester i was like what is this he's like they're spraying that he's like was there a bunch of beach brush there i'm like yeah he's like they're spraying it uh i'm like you gotta be kidding me he's like don't you ever he goes don't you listen to me he's like it's gonna get better i'm like i know but right now this sucks you know yeah. like i know it's good it's for the better but and right i still have that cell cam there and i have other cameras the whole way around this cut and um I, I think they were far enough off that that was my only camera that was like on the inside of the cut pointing towards the edge versus inside the, the thicker cover out towards the cut. And so I think all my cameras should be fine, but you can see the ferns turn brown at that line where they sprayed to. And, but the days after that came through, there was so many does that came and visited that scrape. It was weird because the branch didn't actually break. It just flexed around and somehow i have no idea how this machine that went through there didn't break it but i'm interested to see how it works out but in 2020 i had that situation middle of season it was actually the beginning of my rut vacation when they started logging in there and same thing they had the trees marked but the thing with trees being marked is sometimes it seems like they, it might be a few years before they actually cut and that's it's hard to hard to be able to know that. Um, but they came through and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And honestly, it, all it did was make it so I couldn't hunt a few of my areas, but the deer didn't really go that, didn't go that far though. I was filming that the film, I had the long haul at that point. And Justin, remember we were driving out the one night and one of the bucks we were hunting was in that active logging cut with a doe right next to the road i had my headlights on it and it was like there's 150 some inch deer just you know they were still using it just not as much in the daylight when they were actively logging but they were still in the area so that you know i'm sure that you know maybe give you some hope there too as as well but um that, that i don't think that it really affects them it just changes their patterns like you had that deer you know kind of dialed pegged there but so what what i was going to ask is why do you think that deer was crossing that point like what time of the day was he crossing over that so it's a really cool setup he the way that they bed in there like basically the the main ridge runs north south and the sub ridges jut out to the east that are the sub ridges are probably five or six hundred yards apart from spine to spine as it goes down through there and they all jut out towards ag fields so each one of those subridges in between the two subridges, you have a bowl of just like kind of thick and they bed in those bowls. They're not actually bedding on the points of those ridges very often. They're bedding more in the bowls, like back a half mile from the ag. So those deer work their way into the bowls in whatever way they can. And then they bed down for the day and then they travel back out towards the food. Well, a lot of deer in those areas, what they do is they just go down at night. So they'll get down in the bottom, which, you know, Ohio is like a, 400 foot floor to ceiling. So they drop 400 feet in elevation, they hit a scrape and they run right out to the egg. I catch a lot of deer doing that. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. 
So come check it out at, or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the mobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. This specific buck is just different. And I think that's why he's so old because he just does something different. He likes to stay in the cover on the side of that ridge in the steepest part possible. And what he does is he goes until that trail dies out because of basically a cliff. He has two options there, either go down to the bottom or go up over the spine of that ridge and get on the steep side of that ridge and do the same thing on the, on at this point, the leeward side, the north side. So that's what he does. He gets out of his bed and he walks that south side and he just skips over that one area and then he's back in the steep part again. So that deer only uh, has, he's got a 20-yard weakness in his entire route in daylight. But I just so happened and I finally nailed it. I was like, I got his weakness. I, I mean, it's, and it's such a, it's the ultimate weakness because I'm above him in elevation as he's bedded. But my wind is, is dumping off the backside of the ridge. So it's, honestly, man, it's, it was a bulletproof setup for killing that deer. It just took a long time to identify that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, a spot like that is like, you know, not one in a million, but it takes a lot of time of learning an area to really, and I, I know how much time that, and anybody else that follows along with your stuff, how much time you put into learning an area. I mean, what, how many miles did you say you, you hiked last year? It was over a thousand, wasn't it? 2000. Yeah, la- last year was 1200. 1200, 1200 miles, miles yeah. total. So like, put that into context, like spots like that, it may be like, oh man, you're lucky you found that. But in reality, it's just like, you put in now not saying every deer hat does something like that, but it takes a lot of freaking time to be able to find that, that hole. And like, you know, you technically didn't find it until this year, you know, and you had hunted it pretty hard last year. Yeah. For five years, I've been around that area for five years now and I've never noticed that. And you know, every deer is an individual. And I think that as we're learning areas, like you get into an area, you learn about an individual deer, you learn his tendencies, right? And then two years later, you, you find another deer and his tendencies are different in that area. And so you learn him and you're like, okay, yeah, he has a totally different route than this first one. But eventually down the road, there's going to be other deer in those systems that are going to have very similar patterns to one of those setups. And so the longer you stay in these areas, I've heard you talk about the five-year plan a lot, but you can even go further than that with like a 10-year plan where you know, eventually you're going to have a deer that's showing similar tendencies to a buck from the past. You're like, okay, well, I might already have a heads up on what this deer is doing. And that's where, that's where I think journaling is really, really important because we've got all this going on in our head and we have all these spots we're putting in all these miles. If you're not journaling that you're going to lose that train of thought eventually. And it might not be valuable for 10 years. You know, like, let's say this cut, this cut grows up and it turns into an awesome bedding area slash food source. I might catch that same pattern five years from now when that cuts five years old. So it's just like storing that data somewhere. So next time you see that, you're like, okay, I might have an idea what's going on. And then you can replicate that in other areas as well. Like I was down in Kentucky and I'm normally hunting low this time of year. Well, we find white oaks on top of a ridge and it looks like they're doing that same sort of pattern. So my buddy Corey sets up on it and he had an encounter that first night. So it's just like, you know, you can replicate that in other areas. It's just, it's that evolution that we go through. Yeah, no, most definitely. I think journaling is so important. Like 
and and my dad's what ta- who's taught me all that. He's got notebooks and notebooks full of of stuff. And like I just learned last year that he has all this moon data that he's been tracking that I, he never even talked about, you know. And it's like, but all that stuff, like you can go back and look and be able to to, to be able to find that. Like I, there's so much advantages to hunting an area for a lot of years. That area where I said that they'd sprayed this year. I started hunting there in 2015, so it's eight year eight, I guess, eight or nine, whatever it is that I've been in there, and I feel like I know that area like the back of my hand, but every year I still learn a little bit more or think differently, and it's funny watching me evolve how I hunt it, where I'll start hunting like one core area in there, and then all of a sudden I just I start like moving away, and then I eventually come back, and then I might go this way, and then I come back, and it's just like you you start, and a lot of it comes down to when I'm trying to find a, a certain deer and learning, you know these tendencies, and and you know there was a buck that I've talked about in the podcast I called Hercules that was like the last year I ever named, but he uh, you know, he was a 170 inch deer that that I had uh, missed in 2015, and and he lived for another three years, but he. There's a the buck that moved in uh, now, you know, years later looks just like him and it has some similar trends to what he did. So I'm pulling from those notes that I had from back when I was hunting him to start to learn. And I'm really upset that I'm going to be gone the first week of October this year because there is a good black cherry crop and when Hercules was alive and there was a good black cherry crop, that was the only time I could figure out what he was doing in early season. And when he was showing up in daylight and I, I believe it's going to be similar uh, this year with that deer. And I just won't, I won't be around for it. Normally those black cherries are scooped up, you know, by the first 10 days of October. And then after that, if there is any leftover, they don't really go back to them until after the first frost or, or snow that comes in and they'll dig up some of the dried up ones. But, uh, nonetheless, you can learn so much from, from that, and that, that data that you have, even not with that specific deer, another deer will do that. Hopefully you kill him and you can worry about, you know, another deer doing that down the road. Yeah. That's the plan. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, but it's, it's, it's funny though, because, the the point i think one of the big takeaways with that story is this happens all the time and you, you tend to go in like a panic mode where it may not be as a big of a deal as as you think you know you for the for most of us or for most people you probably don't have a deer as patterned as as you did there or that would that one was staying i'm not going to lie but like they're they're not gonna just completely vacate the whole area and and go away just because of that. I mean, I have so many friends and stuff that are loggers that are just like there's they're they're seeing nice bucks all the time and you know coming in you know right as soon as their machines are shut down you know deer are coming out to feed and it's like yeah it might shift a little bit of what they're doing but they're not gonna completely vacate the area. Yeah, and and that's exactly it. Like it went from you know all summer we're basically taking this data and then trying to formulate that plan for, in my opinion, a lot of that summertime data is only good for 10 days or like, let's say two weeks max. And then they shift again. So basically it's just like, Hey, I know he's here, but now I'm starting basically without any data, which is fine. I'll hunt my way in and have fun. It'll probably take me a lot longer to be honest with you, but it'll be, it'll be a cool hunt either way. It'll be fun. Yeah, no, no, most definitely. The, in, in October is such a weird month. Like, October in, in my, like in my experiences, I spend more time on the ground than I do in a tree, like 
10 times over, if not more, because like it's changing so much. I mean, every week and that's why I don't rely on trail cameras a whole lot during October because well, one, most of my cameras are SD card cameras, maybe a little bit different if it was sell, but sometimes it seems like it's a two to three day thing. And then something shifts or the leaves are dropping off or this browse that they were feeding on got it turned Brown. And it's just like, things are constantly changing. Then all of a sudden testosterone levels are increasing and now they're, you know, focusing more on the does and it's just, it's a, it's a crazy month, uh, to be able to, to do. And that's why I personally like to be on the fly a lot. And I know you do too, of like constantly trying to find, you know, that, that hot sign and, and figure out. So like for you hunting your way in now that you're going after this deer, what, what is going to be kind of your approach and like, what would you technically find the sign you need to be able to set up? So I have, I'm very intimate with this whole area because I've spent so much time in there. And so I have all these little areas build up in my head of if I find sign here in this drainage and I stop and listen and I hear this white Oak flat dropping acorns. Well, I know the beds are 140 yards up this Ridge around the point. And so like for me at this point, it's more of I've done all this homework already where as long as I can verify the one variable that I need, I'll just take a shot at it on the right condition day. And so I'm looking at the, you know, now we're five days out. I'm looking at weather patterns. I'm trying to figure out basically my scouting routes in at this point. And I'll just start working my way, creeping into a system. And if I find what I need, I'll just basically sit down and take a shot at it. And if I don't find what I need, I'll just hop over the next one and then continue to do the same thing. And I'll get to a certain point in the day where I'll probably just go home. Like, unless I can throw an observation set and see something, but a lot of these areas are thick. So, so yeah, for me, it's, it's not like I struggle a lot. If I go into an area where I don't know the bedding or I don't know that where the food sources are necessarily going to be at, because it's hard to be on the fly and do that and be effective on big deer. It's like, okay, I found feeding sign, but you set up on it and it's like, okay, it's a two year old. Or I found feeding sign here and the bedding is a mile away and they're, you know, working way down into this system. So for me, October, I would say my, the biggest thing I have going for me, a lot like yourself in these areas is just like building that intimacy with the area, because then you can play that game and you're looking for one variable as opposed to a bunch of variables. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. Like it's, I, I struggle with the same thing. It's like last year in West Virginia, I went down in October for like three days to be able to hunt slash scout. I never climbed in the tree once because I couldn't like, I'm like trying to look for a specific type of deer, which is, you know, I look at West Virginia as like, that's my trophy state. And like, this is, I want to, I want to shoot something really big. And it's like, it's really hard to go in on the fly and find something that like, you know, I found there's acorns dropping. I knew that this was going on, but it's like, okay, where are they betting? This whole area is super thick. So my idea was just like, keep scouting. And if, and if I bump them, all right, now I learned something because I didn't have that previous knowledge. I didn't scout there in the spring. It was, you know, brand new going into it. Now, you know, this year I went down in the spring and it was like, I walked as much as I could to start getting more of a picture. But Still, I, I don't, I don't feel confident as far as like knowing exactly where these deer bed at or doing anything. It takes a lot of time of, of building this and like having those personal experiences to be able to, to know that it's, it's tough. And that's where the value of knowing an area is to, to be able to adapt on the fly like that. I mean, I, I was just talking to 
uh, Nathan Killen about it when I was with him in person, we were just chatting, you know, he was talking about how he doesn't do a whole lot of, you know, summer scouting other than running cameras. He's like, you know, I did my work before, you know, in the spring and it's like, I'll see what the conditions are as far as food sources and stuff. And that, that'll obviously change things, but I already have a plan for all of these different things that could, could potentially happen. Yeah. And I think you can look at pretty much across the board. I don't know if there's many guys out there that are very successful just going in blind and like at least consistently year after year, it seems like the guys that are successful early to mid October are guys that have done a ton of legwork and a ton of homework. And they just build up that intimacy. Like you in West Virginia, three to five years from now, you're going to be able to go into those, those areas. And then you're like, okay, well that same food source I saw year one is hot. I bumped those deer. I know where they should be. So I just have to cut them off at this point. So just like building that intimacy up and that intel up over time is just going to lead to lead to more success. Yeah. And it's like West Virginia, one of the things that I'm learning, or this is like my latest theory at least, but I know that there's really, really big deer that can live there. So I'm hunting a chunk of private land that's a big chunk of private and that we're, we all, we have at least, so it's like we have 150 inch minimum that we're not willing to shoot less than that unless it's an eight point it could be 140 inches which is huge that is huge. so i know that has the potential to grow these big deer and i i've found a couple but like i'm like there's a lot of land here and i'm not finding them what am i what am i doing that's you know off the wall that i can start thinking of and now i'm like maybe they're betting way lower than i am that i'm thinking like maybe they're right above you know people always see you know big deer from the roads like down in the valleys and stuff and i'm like maybe these deer are just living down low on these side hills and I'm just not, you know, I hadn't picked up on it at that point. And I was, I was talking to my buddy Josh about it that lives down there and, and he was kind of coming up with the same type of conclusion. He's like, I just talking about that with Zach the other day. And I'm like, man, that's, that's something that, you know, and, and like I said, this is every area is different. So it's like trying to put these pieces together and, you know, eventually, you, you find something and then it starts working for you. And then that's when the consistent, hopefully success, you know, rolls after that of being able to do it. And what do you, what do you feel like with you? You know, you're starting to really branch out and hunt a whole bunch of different States. I saw you've been scouting Indiana and Kentucky and all these places. What has that been like for you, uh, from a, a, a change? So I'm, I'm learning how to do that still. And this year, one of the big wake up calls I have now looking back on it is you build up tendencies as a hunter in whatever area you're in. And then you just like basically make assumptions. At least I do. I make assumptions that deer do deer things anywhere you go, but every, every place is different in some way, shape or form. And I'm starting to recognize that, um, you know, Kentucky, for example, they have the hub scrapes down low where they should be. Like everything looks identical to where I hunt in Ohio but the deer just aren't dropping low that much, at least the big mature bucks. They're actually feeding up more often. And so I'm, I'm working through that. Uh, Illinois, when I went out there and scouted, Illinois was a big curveball because there's a lot of cliffs and there's a lot of uh, just recreation in general. So areas that I thought would look good on a map, I went in, I wasted a ton of time in areas just trying to like dissect what's actually good or not. Um, but Indiana was was close. New York is actually quite a bit different in certain areas I hunt. So like I have the farm slash mountain mix kind of in, you know, like I grew up 45 minutes north of you basically. But if I go a little bit further east, I get back into just straight mountains and big woods. 
And those deer are totally different there too. And I've started, when I go up there, I focus more on that big wood setting now. I've noticed a lot of those deer are actually bedding lower, like what you're seeing in West Virginia. So it's, it's really just trying to like, as a hunter, break out of the tendencies that I have in my head and just stay open-minded. That's been my big thing through my stories and my social media this year and my podcast is trying to just become as open-minded and as accepting of whatever deer are telling me is possible. Where in the past, I would just be like, well, that doesn't make sense. They're not doing this. Like, it doesn't make sense that this giant nine-year-old deer is walking over top of the spine of this ridge, so it's not happening. But in reality, it's happening, and it's a, it, like, he's exposed. And so, like, I'm just, as a hunter, I'm trying to do my best job as possible of just accepting what the deer are telling me and then taking that and evolving and adapting, like, down that road as opposed to just just being, you know, maybe a little bit cocky with what I think I know. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you go with those tendencies. Like I remember the first time I hunted Ohio and I'm like, at that point I was killing every deer I ever shot in the bottom. And I was like, I'm going to go to the bottom, find the scrape and I'm going to kill a deer, go there, never saw, you know, anything. And it was like, all right, this is different. This is steeper. My wind's doing nothing but swirling it. Like the bottoms weren't as wide, I guess. And it was like making it difficult for me to take my bottom strategy and hunt there. And it took a whole season of a whole week of rut hunting of just completely screwing up to realize that, okay, they're not. And if they are, I'm already screwing it up because my wind's just sitting there whirling around and going up and covering everything that's around here. Nothing's coming down to me. So I had to change it up and hunt it differently than I would in Pennsylvania. And, and then like you start going to different areas and, but it's so hard to do because you get these tendencies and sometimes those tendencies can be good and they can be translated, but you got to know of like when, when to kind of let go of those things they are always good starting points. And then, and, and I still struggle with it. You know, for example, you, you being used to hunting places that have a decent amount of pressure, I look at the tops of saddles and I'm like, whatever, you know, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not hunting there. Well, then I'd go to West Virginia where it's private and there's only 25 of us or whatever that are hunting this big piece of property that, okay, they are running some of these tops of the ridges during the rut at times. Like they are doing things that even that look picture perfect on a map and, you know, it should work, but normally it doesn't because there's people already there. And it's like, okay, all right. And I'll, now it's like trying to reframe that, that mind. And, and, you know, luckily for me and you, like we get to talk to so many successful people from all over and that helps a lot to be able to kind of lessen that learning curve a little bit. If we, you know, and, and I think you have the right mindset of just being open to it. And, and I, 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 I try to be that way with everything. Like there's so many pe- different people that have different styles. I've taken so much from you since I've been able to know you for the last four or five years or whatever it's been to like get better at hunting early on and getting better at the, the buck betting side of things where, you know, I was primarily a rut hunter and it's like, now I'm trying to, you know, get out of that and start not get out of it because I still love it, but like try to do some different things and throw different strategies at it. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's humbling too. I mean, it, it's, it's hard. It's deer hunting's hard, no matter how you look at it. It definitely is. And there's so much to be said about just being, being willing to learn from people. I've learned a ton from you. I, I can name off a hundred guys that I know that I look up to in some way, shape or form as men, as deer hunters, whatever it may be. And 
it's just it, the moment that you can accept that people are going to have different strategies that work for them. And you're like, every person that I talk to can teach me something. I think it's just going to skyrocket your success, to be honest with you. I know it's it's helped mine tremendously over the last 10 years with just learning from different people at different points. Yeah, no, it's like, I, I even look at it. Um, the other day we were at our deer camp, my brother had killed a, a sheep in Colorado. We were eating food and just talking amongst my family. Okay. We all hunt similar areas, but for the most part, we all hunt them differently. And, you know, I have some of my uncles that are, that take their climber and they'll hunt in the exact same spot for an entire week or two weeks and always kill a nice buck. And they are always doing that during the run. I mean, and that's a strategy that works. That's something that I don't do as much because I, I, I struggle sitting in the exact same spot for that many days, but they've got their access down. They get in, it's low density. It's like something's going to come through here at some point. You know, I have my cousin Mason that hunts a lot of oddball spots and, but always gets it done. Like sometimes I look at the areas he hunts and I'm like, I don't get it. You know, I just, and you know, that me and my dad are a little bit more similar with using scrapes a lot and, and hunting in the bottom of hubs and doing some different things there where it's like, everyone's got a different approach and it, and it can work for them. It's like finding those things. And, and, and also I think for me, I've kind of come to learn is like, find what I like to do and feel how to get, figure out how to get good at doing that. You know, and that's like, I like hunting off the ground sometimes too. And just like still hunting and scouting. And it's like, I used to think like that I was wrong for wanting to do that. And, you know, and then really I learned that from my dad and then also Zach Farrenbaugh was another big one that likes to hunt off the ground sometimes. And it's like, well, if you like doing it, why not do it? Like it could be an effective way of doing things. So why, why have these stigmas in your head of, of that, you know, effect, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You can get good at doing just about anything in the deer woods to be effective. I'm the same way as you. Like for me, it's like, well, I don't want to sit the same tree in the mountains for 10 days straight. I know that I don't want to do that. So I'm going to adopt some sort of strategy that's going to make sure I don't have to do that, whether it's ground hunting or running, whatever (laughs) it may be, I don't care. So yeah, I agree, man. I think just at the end of the day, like we, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves with the hunting thing and there's all this buildup around it and stuff, but at the end of the day, it's meant to be fun and it's meant to be something that we enjoy. And so just making sure that we stay true to that above all else is, is all we can do at the end of the day. Well, no, what I don't want to do is in late January, climb to a tree at two in the morning, get, <laughs> yeah. get down, take a nap. I could tell when you were saying that, I was like, man, like I, I give you all the credit in the world, but I, I want to avoid that at all yeah. costs. <laughs> you know, you know, my, I, did, I did too, man. And my mentality with that, I was like, there's only, there's only three days left of season. I was like, I wonder if I can just give it everything I got. Just like leave yeah. it all. You know, if I do that and I don't succeed, well, at least I know, like I have... I have zero issues with not killing last year because I know looking at it, I'm like, I gave it more than I had in the bank. I gave it everything I had. I literally woke up and was like, I don't know if my legs are going to work. So yeah, it's just <laughs> leaving it all on the table for me was like, it makes me feel better, I guess. <laughs> Dude, I say it all the time on here, but it's it's so true. It's like the guys that are the most successful hunters, a lot of times are just grinding it until the last possible minute that they can and a lot of times you know you you should have had it happen for you that last day of the season ohio has one of the longest seasons out of any state and it took you know until that time you and to hunt that long i don't care i mean at that point you weren't you weren't um you got you were still working in a factory weren't you 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I was still working in a factory on top yeah. of it. But even if, say, you're you're doing everything with the podcast and the media and stuff like you're doing now or like I'm doing now, to be able to hunt that many days straight, I don't care how much you love hunting. It's not easy. No, it's it was like, 72. I, I do. When I watched and I was watch following along with your stuff, I was like, holy cow, man. Like I like that. I've been there. It's not, it's not fun. It's not, it it gets to a point where it's like, it's tough. It's just really, really, really tough. And, uh, do you flip a switch? Like it's, uh, so I, 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 if I get into like a grind mode, I flip a switch where it goes from, Hey, I'm really enjoying the weather today and everything else to like, I am just running a playbook. Like that's what my mentality goes to when I get in that situation. It's like, all right, the playbook is I got to do this and I got to get in here and I'm going to climb up the tree and sit there and I'm going to get down and drive home and not even worry about success or failure. It's just a playbook. I'm just going to do that exact same thing until it happens or it doesn't happen. But like it goes from a very enjoyable thing that I love to more of just, I feel like a mindless robot. Almost, if you will. Yeah, no, no, you're you're exactly right, and I'm I'm very similar in that, and that's why like people would joke with me that I have like a written hunt plan written out with these spots and what's good for these wins and stuff. I said because I get into a spot sometimes where my mental state is not really. I'm just I'm just moving, and I need to be able to look at what I need to be able to do and kind of pick the right thing and just play it out and go through it because otherwise. You can let you can let your own emotion on not having a good season get in the way and you start talking yourself out of doing certain things or thinking that everything that you've learned or scouted is wrong and you need to start all over when a lot of times you don't and it's just like it's letting those things play out and you know, like for you, you know, you do so much scouting too, and it's like the you found good stuff and sometimes it just takes maybe a different approach or a different time of the year or whatever. And, and you sometimes just got to let it, let it play out. But you know, I, I, it doesn't matter where I'm hunting at. Like when I was just in Alaska, it was funny. Like it always takes me a couple days to get fully in the hunt mode too. Like, you know, get, getting the stresses of everything off you. You know, I, I felt like anxiety when I got there at first and, and I just, just cause of being so busy leading up to it. And then once I got in the mode and it was like, all right, every morning I get up, I make coffee, see if the fog's lifting. All right, I'm gonna hike up to the glassing spot. I'm gonna sit there. I'm gonna cook breakfast after I scan everything. I'm gonna sit there, you know, a couple hours later, I'm gonna have this snack. Then I'm gonna eat this snack and go through. And next thing you know, it's dinner time. Final glass, it's dark. I'm back at the tent, get the food for the next day ready. Everything's my pat my bags ready to go the next morning and you get in this routine and it's just like you just start rolling with it and i i love when i get into that like routine of it now yeah it's it becomes a struggle after you do it for an ex- extended extended period of time like 72 days uh but <laughs> yeah that's it, that's uh it, it's funny you say that i remember a couple years ago uh johnny was trying to talk me into going to ohio and that was that year 2021 i'd killed two bucks so i had a good year you know yep. he's like oh, get an ohio tag let's go down it's like january 22nd i'm like Dude, I, I don't know. Like, I didn't have the motivation at that point because I had already killed deer. Yeah. And uh, last year when he when he had asked me, I shot a buck in PA, but I, I didn't uh, have any luck in West Virginia. And I was like, okay. Uh, he's like, you want to go to Ohio? I'm like, yep, yep, let's go. I'm not, I don't have the candle completely burned out yet. <laughs> I love it, man. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point with 
like getting in that zone too. And the, I guess one thing that I've picked up on this year specifically that I'm going to make sure I do moving forward is having some sort of hunt before, like for, for me, Ohio is the main show, like all my time and effort, all the work goes into Ohio. So I'm going to make sure every year from this point on that I'm hunting somewhere else before Ohio, just to get all like to get the bugs worked out, get the kinks worked out. Because normally I go to Ohio day one and it's like, I'm clanking stuff around. I forgot how to climb a tree. Apparently I'm like, all these things are going, I forget a release or something. So now I've already got that out of the way with Kentucky. I went down there. I, I actually went to Kentucky and wounded a buck day two. Um, but went down there, wounded a buck and I'm like, okay, I came back. I got my bow figured out and my arrows figured out and switched releases. I went back to a uh, finger style as opposed to a thumb style because it's a confidence thing. And I just like went through this whole process. I'm like, well, I'm glad I got it over with and I'm going into the main show with everything figured out at this point. Yeah, no, that's it's so true. Like the, I don't care how much you prepare the first couple sits of the season are, oh man, I'm like, for some reason I forgot how to layer and I decided I was going to wear more stuff in yeah. and then all of a sudden I'm sweating and then you're like trying to climb the tree and all of a sudden there's this branch there. You can't get your lineman's rope around and you're, you're struggling and you're sweating and you get up there and it's all of a sudden it's cracking daylight and you weren't, you're planning on being in the tree an hour before that. And it's like, man, what, you know, what's going on here? But that's, I uh, it. yeah, I, I, and, and I, I'm sure everyone can relate to that because that's, that's just the, the nature of it. But man, it's, uh, I, I think it's going to be a good year. I'm, I'm excited for, I mean, it's, cool out already this is september 25th that we're recording this and like it's been cool and feeling good and some of my cell cams have been been lighting up the last few days and stuff i'm just like man i can't i can't wait to to get in the deer woods do you have the uh north winds forecasted for the opening like we have north winds forecasted until like october 8th right now so i'm looking at that and just kind of drooling i'm like oh man i'm gonna have north winds the deer are gonna be better on the back side of the ridges in a lot of cases and i just I'm excited. Well, I'd love to say I haven't even looked at it because I'll be gone in South Dakota the whole first week. So I've tried to not even just look at it and get it out of my mind. It's the second year in a row that I'll be gone the whole first first week of the season. And PA is my main show. Like that's like you are with Ohio. Like people looking like PA like that's, you know, you get can hunt some pretty cool places. And that's like your thing. I'm like, yeah, because that's where I spend the most time. And I feel feel at home even though it is home you know like like you do in ohio and it's like you know that's that's why i like where i can you know i can go out my door and i can you know drive not that far and go hunt and and continue to to take advantage of that versus having to drive six or seven eight hours to go to a different place you know you can do that but not as much as like your home your home turf i totally agree man well Cool. Well, I think, uh, I think we'll wrap this one up here. Jake is doing this while he's sick, has a little bit of a cold, so we got to get him healed up for the, for the season here. I think, uh, I have a good feeling for you that opening week, you get those North winds, everything, man. I, I, I hope it, hope it all works out for you. Yeah. Thanks, man. My, uh, my buddy, Ethan, <clears throat> I had him on a podcast a while back and, um, I was asking him about his confidence and he said, you know what? I don't really like the word confidence, but I'm just going to go in and run the playbook of what I have and I'll see what happens. And I've adopted that mentality where normally I'd give you like, oh, I'm confident or not confident, but I'm just going to go out and run the playbook and, and see what happens. I like it. 
So for, for anyone listening, I know I didn't, I didn't do a very good job of giving you much of an intro into this one here, but Jake's been on the podcast before. You can go back and listen to kind of his background growing up in New York, moving to Ohio, or you know check out uh, your podcast in session as well as your social media channels. You want to give some shout outs there? Yeah. So, uh, I work with latitude outdoors full time. Now my Instagram is just the Jake Bush and my podcast that I'm running is latitudes in session. So hopefully we'll have Bo on over there in a couple of weeks when my voice heals up a little bit. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Well, thanks again for coming on. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Have a good day. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.